According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, over 200 operas uh, have been based on Shakespeare's plays, and that's only since 1945. So heaven knows how many more there are if you go back before 1945. All I can say is an awful lot of them must have been pretty dreadful because they haven't lived on in any opera house. Uh, however, Benjamin Britten's version of A Midsummer Night's Dream has indeed endured. Um, it's, if it's not a cornerstone, perhaps, of the repertoire of any opera house, like, say, perhaps Grimes or perhaps Billy Budd should be, nonetheless, it's never as an opera, I think, that far away from uh, the artistic director's mind. And it's an opera that in production seems to have come an extraordinary long way since the very first production, which was, of course, in the Jubilee Hall, suitably refurbished in 1960 in Alborough at the Alborough Festival. Carl Tom's production, when you look at the still photographs, looks distinctly Tudor-Bethan, markedly at Tudor-Bethan as all those stockbroker houses with black beams. It's certainly a very long way from what you're going to see on the stage tonight. In a production that I saw uh, in Barcelona, and which also was here, Robert Carson's production at the Colosseum, of course, you will know that other liberties have been taken wonderfully with this particular opera. The Athenian wood in Carson's production became a giant bed with not so much a mossy bank as a vast grass duvet for the lovers Lysander and Demetrius and Helena and Hermia to roll upon. A moss, the mossy bank, a huge pillow where Oberon and Titania could follow over the Indian boy, and a stage two for the rustics to perform their merry and tragical version of the deaths of Pyramus and Thisbe, before, at the end, the mortals were tucked up within the giant bed for their first night of love. It's very different tonight, as you will see. Let me tell you a little bit about the guests we have. Yestin Morris, who's been working on the production, uh, is going to sing a little of Oberon's music for us. Tonight's conductor, Leo Hussein, is going to... Behind me? Yes. Is going to talk about what it feels like to conduct the piece. And we have two other guests to talk about Shakespeare and their work. Rosie Millard is a journalist, broadcaster and author whose most recent book is Bon Vacances, a trip around the departements and territories that make up France. She was, of course, the arts correspondent for BBC News for over a decade, covering everything, as she said, from the opening of the Tate Modern to pounding the red carpet in pursuit of film stars. Stanley Wells is Emeritus Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Birmingham, a former director of the prestigious Shakespeare Institute and the chief editor of the Oxford edition of Shakespeare. His most recent book is Shakespeare, Sex and Love. That seems to be rather a good summary of a Midsummer Night's Dream, <laughs> uh, but we shall no doubt discover more. Can I ask Stanley first, what makes do you think a Midsummer Night's Dream, the most popular of Shakespeare's plays, both for audiences and composers. It's just so marvellous, isn't it? I mean, it, it's partly because it's so beautifully written. It is wonderful poetry and also wonderful prose. It's also a wonderfully varied play. It's a marvellously imaginative play. Indeed, I would say it's actually about the imagination and about response to, to life, to love, to literature as well in, in the play. Uh, and it's very, very funny. I mean, you know, the parody in the Mechanicals uh, final scene is one of the great detachable set pieces, actually. I remember once I was at a performance of Measure for Measure, and in the interval I heard a ten-year-old boy, I think he was, say, I wish it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> and I, I think that rather sums up the great pleasure that the play gives. What do you think the great pleasure is, Rosie? It's a true masterpiece in that you can see it in mud, you can see it in a bed, you can see it... Uh, my daughter's primary school did it last year, you know, ch small children speaking the words, you can see it sung. 
it's, it's at once universal and it is also terribly English. It's dealing with class, with love, it's dealing with the fear of imagination and the unknown and uh, it's kind of got rumbustious slapstick and, and great sadness in it as well. It, it is absolutely miraculous play. And, and also, it doesn't really deal with character as much as psychology. That's, I think, what makes it so timeless. Maybe that's the reason that it really appealed to Britain, this idea of, of exploring psychology. We could perhaps come back absolutely. to that. Absolutely, and also the very English nature of, of it. I mean, I think it really does. I know it's set in, set in Athens, but it's, it's very, very English. The man who holds all this together, of course, is tonight's conductor, Leo Hussein. Leo, how would you describe the kind of sound world that Britain creates for this piece? Well, I mean, I think of all the words in the title, he kind of started from the word dream. Right from the very beginning, you know, these, these famous string glissandi chords which, which open the piece it sort of plunges us into this surrealist kind of atmosphere. The interesting thing in terms of the sound world is it's very clearly written in three distinct groups. So, you know, you have the fairy world, which, is, which is, has its own particular colour. The group of lovers have their own colour. The mechanicals, or, I mean, in Britain, actually, he calls them rustics. He never refers to them as mechanicals. But they have their own colour as well. And there are these three very distinct worlds. Do they have their own instrumentation in the orchestra too? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, strings and harps and percussion, and, and the sort of tuned percussion is the, is the fairy's world. The lovers is much more to do with these, wood, these sort of long woodwind lines, which is more the, the lover stuff. And of course, of course the, the rustics are these sort of big trombone bassoon solos. So yeah, it's all three very, very distinct ones. Of course, the, the, the fourth sort of subset of that is this Oberon-Puck duality, which is solo trumpet and this tambura, this little, little drum. And do these three worlds, musically, begin to overlap in interesting ways in the course of the score? The really fascinating thing is that the interludes, which is, always goes back to this, this music that we hear at the very beginning, begin to blur the boundaries and everything. I mean, it's one of the problems I had when, when I was first learning the score is it seems so sort of compartmentalised. You think, OK, here's a little uh, mechanical scene, then you have an interlude, then you have a lover's music. And, and the way of trying to blur that and mould it into one seamless line was very challenging for me. I mean, the more I do it and the more we perform it, actually, every performance, the more it begins to just smooth out. And you feel, as you said, these, these interludes kind of creep into the, the end and the beginning of each of the scenes. But are the musical themes that attach themselves to characters or to groups of characters that, that are developed that we can have as, uh, find our way through where we are or can be used ironically as often leitmotifs are in, in say, Wagner? Not really, I would say. I mean, you know, when you, when you sort of sit down and analyse the score, there are little harmonic, little melodic cells, but they're not, they're not things which I think it's very interesting to follow through in terms of a, a sort of analysis of the, of the piece in that way. There is the odd theme which recurs, for example, the first theme that the children's chorus sing, Over Hill, Over Dale, comes back at the end of the first act as a lullaby. The music for, for Lysander and Hermia has these melodic cells in them as well, which keep returning. But it's more the colours in the worlds that are, that are more interesting, I think. If we discount Noah's Flood as a kind of full-scale opera, this is the opera that comes after Turn of the Screw. And, and there's been a sense in which perhaps all of us have thought of Turn of the Screw as an extraordinary achievement and thought less in some ways, perhaps. Now, do you think that's true or not? Thought less that... Less of Midsummer Night's Dream than we have of Turn of the Screw. I think it's a, a great prejudice against the piece, actually. I mean, it, also, when you think of the amount of opera that he wrote in this 
in this period, the sort of the mid 40s to the to the end of the 50s. You know, you have Grimes, you have Bard, you have Gloriana, you have all these ones. Turn of the Screw, I think, is 54. I think you get to Midsummer Night's Dream in 1960, and there's kind of nothing between that and Death in Venice. It's just um, Owen Wingrave, which comes at the end of the 60s. So uh, there is a sense, I think, in which Britain felt that he'd kind of written so much opera and so much great opera in this decade. I think it kind of culminates in this piece. And you're right that people think, yes, Turn of the Screw's a masterpiece and Dream isn't. You know, everyone has their own reasons for that. Personally, I think it's because people treat Midsummer Night's Dream as this slightly camp, provincial English sort of counterpart to Albert Herring, maybe, um, which I don't think it should be. And I think that's one of the great strengths of this production is that it doesn't treat it like that. You seem to be suggesting that we should actually see Midsummer Night's Dream almost as a mirror image of the dark, um, deeply disturbing world of, of Turn of the Screw. I think it's definitely there. I mean, there's no, it's, it, there's no accident that the very first notes we hear in the piece are these two, these double basses, really low double basses on, on a B and a G. I mean, it, it gives us this slightly sinister, slightly dark world. The most obvious comparison with Turn of the Screw, of course, is this, this sort of eerie Celeste colour which accompanies Oberon, which has very much this, the sound world of Peter Quint about it, of course. But, yeah, I mean, I think the piece Midsummer Night's Dream suffers from being seen as light-hearted, whereas, in fact, it's, it's something a lot more complicated, a lot deeper than that. Well, people always patronise comedy, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. The coach who worked with the boys who sang the fairies in the first production admittedly got the music rather late, but nonetheless is on record as having said to Britain that it really was fiendishly difficult and he didn't think they could really sing it. In the event, they clearly did. Is it that difficult for, for the boys? I have to say, I don't think it is that difficult. I mean, I think Britain enjoyed challenging, challenging the, the musical faculties of the boys. There's no doubt about that. For when you compare it to... Uh, I mean, some of the other, the, the other stuff he writes for boys' voices, I would say, is much more challenging. I mean, you could think famously of Ceremony of Carols or some of the, a couple of these pieces he wrote for the Vienna Boys' Choir later on, which I think are probably more challenging. Rhythmically, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult for them. But then Britain's big thing was that he didn't want to bring the sound of a church choir into the theatre. He wanted to bring the playground into a theatre. And this is, again, something which we've worked on a lot, is trying to get these very, very well-trained, very well-disciplined boys to actually sing as though they've just stepped off the playground rather than just come in from choir practice. We, we need also perhaps to remind ourselves that the most startling thing about this was the casting of Oberon as a countertenor. I mean, we're now so used to this that we forget what an extraordinary invitation it was to Alfred Deller to sing this part. Why do you think Britain chose? Well, he says it's because he wanted this, this sense of otherness to it. It does give a strange kind of detachment because one would think, OK, you cast a, a countertenor as, a, as the king of the fairies. The, it would make the emphasis much more on fairy than on king. But actually, when you listen to it, there's something incredibly powerful about it and something incredibly strong. It does give an eeriness to it. It complements very nicely this, this sound world that he creates for, for Oberon in the orchestra. But I think it means that one can be potent without being aggressive or threatening, really. I mean, that's the beauty of a countertenor voice for me. Do you also think it's something about Englishness? After all, he'd first heard Alfred Della singing Purcell. Um, Britain, we know, along with Tippett, was fascinated by returning to Purcell. Purcell himself may well have sung as a countertenor, we don't know. But do you think there's something about Englishness about this choice? 
I think that's a difficult question because I think it's so linked to the culture of how it was at the time. And I am not sure I know enough about the prevailing trends of the late 50s and early 60s that I can comment on it, really. But I think that is this Purcell connection is very interesting. It's, it's noteworthy how often in the score he actually writes the word Purcellian. You know, there are all these notes all over the score saying this rhythm should be in such and such a time, Purcellian style. So I'm sure that was in his mind. Yeah, maybe, maybe the sort of old English tradition rather than contemporary English tradition. A last question before we invite the audience to join the conversation. As you stand in front of the orchestra <laughs> in the Colosseum, what, before you raise your baton to start, what do you know is going to be the big challenge for you in the pit in the course of the evening and indeed watching the stage? I don't know. That's the beauty of doing opera and live theatres. I have no idea what the challenge is going to be of that particular evening. You know, I'm sure the challenges of this evening will be different to the challenges that they were on Saturday. And, and I mean, there are specific challenges, of course, in the, in the production in that you'll see the, the set is enormous, which means that quite often there's a huge distance between me and whoever's singing on stage, height-wise, as well as just, uh, just them being far back on the stage. So, I mean, that's a kind of silly, practical consideration. I mean, really, it's, it's responding to the stage and it's creating, it's telling the story and the music and making it hold together, which is, it sounds a bit, a bit, bit pretentious and a bit airy-fairy, but I can't really put anything better than that, I'm afraid. Let's ask if anyone in the audience. If you'd like to ask uh, Leo a question, please put up your hand. I'll repeat the question because not everybody can hear. So if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. Yes. It's a question really about, I mean, I haven't seen the production. I'm greatly looking forward to it. I've seen the, uh, the opera a couple of times. And what I've read about it, it does seem very dark, and it does sound as though knowledge of Britain's own biography has been brought mm. to the interpretative choices of the setting and of the atmosphere. And I wonder if um, we might have some comments on that, please. Yes. Um, can I repeat the question? The question is that this sounds a dark production and maybe there is something in Britain's own biography in it. I, we should, Leo, perhaps be a little careful not to give anything away. Mm -hmm. But most general terms, perhaps you might... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that can be a bit of a red herring, that. And I think that with a, with a production which is clearly made bold choices, there is a temptation for all of us to read a little too much into something. All I would say is that it was certainly not something that was ever brought up in the rehearsal process. There was no question of, well, Britain obviously had this tendency or would have liked this, so this is the choice we make. And, I mean, it wasn't something that we were ever conscious of. Another question. So, no, there was another hand. Yes. This is a question about, about booing um, and, and, and how people responded to booing an unusual event at the Coliseum. I don't think it's that unusual, is it? I don't think it's that unusual. I mean, it's certainly more unusual than it is in, in uh, the German-speaking world, which is where I do most of my work. Uh, but actually, I've never... I think that it's the first time that I have conducted a production which has provoked that kind of reaction on the first night. Um, oh, it's certainly the first time I've heard it on the first night from the stage, anyway. But, uh, you know, I think art... Uh, it is not a bad thing for arts to, to provoke a, a strong reaction, whichever way. Of course, nobody sets out to displease people. But at the same time, I think when we create art, we have to be honest about what our own view of something is. And we have to present what we think on stage. And 
I think it's un slightly unrealistic to expect or even want to please everybody the whole time because then I think starts the job becomes something other than what it should be. I mean, as in terms of how people respond to it, I mean, I think everybody responds to it differently. I mean, I, I find it quite thrilling to actually be somewhere on a stage where it provokes such varied reactions in the audience. I mean, you know, it wasn't just booing. The great thing about booing is that when someone gets booed on stage, it tends to provoke the people who liked it into cheering even more. So I, it also, <laughs> I think also it's about you know, how you look at Shakespeare and how you look at the dream in particular. Do you see it as a heritage piece or mm. do you see it as a, as a piece of contemporary art? And you know, or is it both things at once? Um, yeah, I mean, I know. think the, we English have a particularly proprietorial feeling over Britain's operas, I think. And but, but, but also, you know, when Peter Brook did The Dream in the mm. 60s, you know, the famous White Box production, that was so iconoclastic that, that there are lectures about it now. Uh, when you, you know, <laughs> so Stanley and I have long memories, <laughs> I, I suspect it is. Yeah. Leo, we must let you return to the pit, but thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thank you very much indeed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to hear a little music from the opera. Uh, Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's a member of the English National Opera Music Staff, and the countertenor Yestin Morris, uh, who's been working on the production on the role of Oberon, uh, is going to sing Oberon's aria, I Know a Bank. Welcome, wanderer. Hast thou the flower? Doubled the skin 
Yes, did I notice that when I asked Leo Hussein about why Britain might have chosen uh, a countertenor, you were obviously longing to say something. Do, do, what, 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 why do you think? Can, do you have an idea as to what the, what the choice was determined by? Well, I think certainly through the 50s and 60s, lots of composers, particularly in England, were looking for different sounds, different sound worlds. Um, I think later in the 60s, uh, Tabner, for example, was discovered by the Beatles doing vast compositions of uh, essentially whale noises, and also other composers were trying to reinvest the sound of the harpsichord into the world of a symphony orchestra and things like that. To, tonight, for example, we have a harpsichord in Myths on Extreme. Particularly for Oberon, he wanted something that was, as Leo said, something, something different. And it was uh, Michael Tippett who, in fact, uh, suggested, well, what you need to do is go down to Canterbury Cathedral um, and just sit in on Evensong. And then suddenly he discovered that there was homegrown talent from an almost unbroken line of about 500 years of this, uh, this male alto, which has always been in, in the cathedral schools um, since year dot, really. Um, and it was from that that he thought, OK, right, fine, that's, it. that's where we're going to go with it. Anybody who's expecting um, Oberon as a kind of traditional figure in any sense um, in this evening's production is going to be surprised. Who is Oberon um, in this production? Well, it's very difficult personally to, to say. You have to, I think you first of all assume that he is the all-powerful, all-seeing, um, both corporeal and both spiritual being that is always there. And yet then you have to approach that into a very real um, situation on stage. Uh, in this production, he is described to get some parity as a, a Latin master, and Titania is the music teacher. But I sort of feel that somehow, because he's all, I feel he's more of a more of a senior master or a headmaster or something like that, um, working within the school just to get that that sense of authority, um, and yet not being part of everyone else's gang, which you you need to to sort of get all the nuances of the of the character. I feel, and also he has perhaps a rather different relationship with Puck. He certainly does in this production. Puck is very much his henchman, which is in the text, but it, there's a slightly darker substance to that. There's, there's been obviously some, some corruption of innocence, which, uh, which 
this Oberon seems to be uh, fascinated in. So Puck is, is his dog's body, but plaything, um, servant, uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, and he's sort of got to the stage where his innocence has now been so corrupted, in a sense, that he, Oberon himself is no longer interested in him. And he's beginning to reject this Puck for a, a younger model. You sort of trade them in after a while, apparently. But. And here, of course, is the great Britain theme, isn't it? Both the ability to corrupt innocence, but also how innocence in itself is corrupting. Yes, absolutely. It's the innocence which is the drug, and it's the innocence which eventually um, leads everyone to... The, the loss of innocence which leads people to reject each other. How difficult is the role of Oberon to sing? I mean, how, what are the challenges that the Britain proposes for the artist? Again, it's a, a difficult, uh, difficult answer. It's both um, quite easy and very, very hard. Because of its origins, because it comes from Britain meeting a countertenor in Canterbury Cathedral, it has a certain range which uh, is not so useful in, the, um, in what we understand as the modern-day countertenor. It's sort of low, lowish and quite narrow in range. Having said that, um, I mean, if you've got the low notes, then that's absolutely fine. It's very easy. However, on the page, uh, it's quite important, and uh, contemporary composers take note, what he's not doing very clearly is writing for a vocal effect. He certainly wants a new colour, but he is absolutely writing for a singer, and he really wants you to actually sing it. And that goes right from the, the, from the word go. When, uh, when Titania and Oberon meet together on the score, it's got loud, forte, um, ill-met by moonlight, huge duet. The problem is it's in the lower, comfortable middle of the range, and Titania is right at the top, on top A. You can imagine full battle dress, screeching everything. It's wonderful. And so it's a little bit tricky. Um, we should <laughs> say she loses her coloratura when she falls in love with bottom. Absolutely. Oh, she certainly does do that. <laughs> yes. So actually, uh, the, the technical difficulties are not to, to do with getting the notes. It's to do with getting the notes and imbuing with all the information that Britain wants out of them. That is where it gets very difficult. In a range area of the voice where the voice doesn't really sing. You really need to um, power it through and enjoy different colours and, and accept all sorts of different um, range of expression, range of dynamics, and particularly the, the broad colour palette that he has. Yes, Morris, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The, the libretto for Britain's Opera Midsummer Night's Dream was eventually prepared by Peter Pierce, who took the role of flute in the first production, but it's perfectly clear from Britain's own correspondence that the composer himself had a large say in the preparation of the libretto. And perhaps the boldest decision, and we don't know whose decision it was, was to cut the opening scenes of the play in Athens and to start, as Leo told us, in the mysterious Athenian woods with those extraordinary glissandi that begin the piece. Thereafter, with a handful of changes to the text and some rearranging of the lines, the composer and his companion keep faith with Shakespeare's original text. And as we've said, it's what interested Shakespeare, also interested Britain, the psychology of the characters and indeed the madness of love. Britain wrote that he'd always loved the play, and what was especially exciting about the work were the three groups of characters, the lovers, the rustics as he called them, and the fairies. He also told readers of the Observer newspaper that this was a more relaxed work than its immediate predecessor, The Turn of the Screw. Well, you may have second thoughts about Britain's own judgment after this evening. And a few months after the premiere of the work in the newly refurbished Jubilee Hall, he wrote the composer to a friend, it was a joy setting those heavenly words. Stanley, can I ask you first, how do you feel that Britain actually sets Shakespeare's play? 
I, I think he gets the variety of the play. The play is extraordinarily varied in its textures and its styles. You know, there's a very stylized verse, there's the little framed verse of Puck often speaking in, in short lines and in couplets. And of course, there's the prose, the robust, the very robust prose. I mean, the, the style of the play is very varied. And I think Britain uh, responds to that extraordinarily well. Going back to the countertenor, I mean, I remember hearing Alfredella in 1949, seeing him in University College before he took up a, well, this is the first operatic role, isn't it? Written for a countertenor since the 17th century. I think Britain was interested in that partly because he wanted to show the range of high voices. Uh, uh, you know, you've got the boys, the, the boys sopranos, you, the trebles, you've got the, the more than one sort of a female voice, you've got the countertenor, you've got the spoken voice of Puck. They all come together most wonderfully in the absolutely heavenly final scene, which, to my mind, is one of the finest endings of any opera in the whole repertoire. But Britain was also, I think, very bold in using Shakespeare's words. I mean, can you think of any other opera that uses Shakespeare's words? I mean, Thomas Adder's uh, librettist just corrupted them like mad uh, for, for the tempers and makes a hash of them, in my view, although there's some wonderful music there. It was very bold. It's very daring to try to complement the music of Shakespeare with the music of, well, music. <laughs> Most of the settings of Shakespeare's words are either not very good or they're of the words that Shakespeare wrote to be set to music, like the song. Shakespeare, in the plays, the music is usually all there in the language. The composer hasn't really got much to add. I mean, all right, Vaughan Williams does wonderfully in the serenade to music, for example. But most of the best Shakespearean vocal music is the lyrics from the plays, not the dialogue of the plays. Rosie, do you think it was also a brave, courageous decision to uh, literally uh, dispense with the opening scenes in Athens, with the, the row between Aegeus um, uh, uh, about, about his daughter marrying mm. the wrong man? Essentially, he plunges you straight into the forest, mm. and he makes the forest the heart of the piece. And I think that you know, maybe it was a practical decision because of the stage in Auburn, maybe it was easier to, to have it just in the... It makes it quite clear what Britain wants you to focus on. And he sort of makes the Titania Bottom scenario, I think, the more central to, to the yeah. play rather than the lovers. That's the thing you're really looking at. It's also perhaps that in the 20th century, forests have a particularly dark history within European history. You know, they are places of mass murder and so on, in yes. a way... Well, I think... Well, well, I don't think necessarily... The 20th century, I mean, if you think about yeah. sort of novels of Jane Austen, whenever anyone goes into a forest, you know that, you know, when they go through the gates and into, into wildness, into nature, they leave civilization behind. I think that's a very ancient metaphor. It's really literature, too. Well, it's true of Elizabethan literature, too, that the forests are, are places of mystery and of, of danger. And I think there's a wonderful sense of danger in Britain's setting. Of course, it's partly about a sh sheer length. Word, setting words to music takes time. Uh, and Britain uses only about half of the lines in the play, but yet it, it achieves a full-length opera as a result of them. And, and I think that's very much part of the technique. I mean, the subconscious is so strong in this opera, I think, and, and it reflects things that you can find in the subconscious of the play too, I think. I mean, the, the play has a very erotic underbelly, if you like, and that sweet, the song which we've just heard so beautifully sung, it's a very erotic song, I think. I was watching a YouTube uh, version of it yesterday, uh, yesterday and the, the Oberon 
who is, has Puck on stage during it, of course, was caressing Oberon throughout it, which suggested the eroticism, which I think is often there in Shakespeare's play. And in the homoeroticism. Indeed, there is a good deal of that, I think, and, it, and it's, it's possible to discern that in the relationship between Oberon and Puck, perhaps. Certainly in the relationship between Helen and Hermia, it's sometimes been suggested, in their youth at least, and also in the, the tension between Oberon and Titania, and the fact that Titania, uh, the quarrel is about a little Indian boy. He's not brought on in the play, though directors often bring him on, and, uh, and Titania is grieving because of the death of a woman to whom she was clearly very, very devoted, uh, who died in childbirth, bringing this boy. So there's a lot of eroticism in the play, and of course there's also, I mean, the play is a dream, and Britain was obsessed with dream, with dreams, the theme of dreams. You know, you get it so often in, in, in the nocturne, the, the, the tenor nocturne in, in, in the serenade, in parts of Billy Budd, I think, too. And so I think the dream aspects of the play spoke very intimately to some sh uh, of Britain's deepest preoccupations. Rosie, you're right to remind us that within the middle of the opera, the foregrounded relationship is between Bottom and Titania. Do you feel the price of that is that the relationship between the four mortal lovers somehow recedes from the centre of our attention, that it becomes less about the attempt to re-establish some kind of normative love between these four than the play? I think if one closes one's eyes and thinks about Miss Summerlight's dream, what you think about is Titania and Bottom, first and foremost. I mean, I don't know about anyone else, oh. but I always get, I always get the, the lovers muddled up. I can never remember. Yes, yes, me know. too. Yeah, yeah Lysanne and Demetrius, they yeah. yeah. they're interchangeable, frankly. The height difference is the only gag that kind of runs through them. I mean, I, I find the lovers slightly tiresome. Mm. I mean, I like the row between the women, but, but apart from that, whenever I'm watching it, I cannot wait for, you know, moth and cobweb and all them to come mm. on, or the mechanicals, you know, because that is just, it's one of the great, great moments of British comedy, of, of theatrical comedy, not necessarily British theatrical comedy. And if you think about how artists have conveyed yeah. in Midsummer Night's Dream, it's always donkey, isn't it? And, and the beautiful woman caressing the beast. It's the sort of the shock and, and horror of that. Yeah, that's often been brought out in productions of the play, and it is sometimes, I think, quite grossly unnecessary. It all depends on one, what the interpretation of one line, you know. When Bottom says, me thought I had... Now, what did he me think he had? You know, the conventional one is ears. But when Des Barrett played, did he look down his trousers? Jan Cott, in his essay on the play, which I hate, so, <laughs> talks about um, the, the ass as being the animal with the hardest and longest phallus of any other animal. So it's, it's quite true that the, there has been a lot of emphasis on the eroticism uh, and the comedy of the eroticism of Titania and Bottom. But I would say that Britain actually does make a great deal of the lovers in the great quartet. He makes more of it there than Shakespeare does. I mean, the great quartet of awaking from the, from the dream, mine own and not mine own, is to me one of the most be beautiful things in opera. It's a wonderful love quartet. And, and Britain, through the music, enhances the romance that is inherent and latent, but not fully brought out by Shakespeare in his language, I think. So I wouldn't agree that the lovers are unimportant, or that it's not a play about romantic love, because a romantic love comes through there and then reaches its fruition and its blessing in the grace of that wonderful last scene uh, with the blessing on the house, which, as I say, I think is just one of the most heavenly things written. 
we should, we should ask the audience to join us. Um, if you'd like to, to join in, do please raise your hand and I'll repeat the question so everybody can hear. Yes. Yes, it's a question we've talked about at great length. I've always taken the view that what I want to know, or what I would want to know, what I think I would want to know, uh, is what the piece is or what the piece might be, not necessarily what the production I'm going to see is. Um, now, that may be wrong, but that's the view I've taken. What we might do is just ask for a show of hands. Just, why, why don't we excise a little bit of uh, rough-and-ready uh, democracy? Those people who would like in a sense, to know exactly what they're about to see. The question is, would you like to know what the production is going to be, or would you not? So let's have nots. Well, it's a sort of... It's really part, it, it's, do you want an introduction or do you want a post-performance discussion? We haven't seen the production. I haven't so, seen it. So yeah, we'd be a, they uh, haven't seen it either. No, no, no. <laughs> the, the guests haven't seen it either. Can I just say, because I've been thinking about this, last night I went to see School for Scandal at the Barbican, restoration masterpiece, <laughs> and one of the problems the critics had with it was that it's, it's done a very... Has anyone here seen it? Did, did you like it? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was really completely brilliant. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well the, well, the critics, similarly, five-star. But one of, the, one of the things that the, the critics have said about it is that, um, because it's done half in very, very modern clothes, people have blackberries, people are sort of holding up boards and so on and so forth, and it is all about sort of, you know, gossip and whether you should keep things quiet, super injunctions, this sort of thing. And one of the things the critics said was, we know this play has contemporary meaning. We don't need it shoved on our throats. I think that this is the problem when you have something which is staged in a contemporary way, which I think we can say this is. Do you feel you can, make, you can do the work for yourself in the audience? You don't need to have it done in modern dress. Would you prefer seeing it done in the Shakespearean dress or indeed in 60s? I don't know, oh, Tudor Beethon, as Britain did it. Or do you think that the e o is here to do precisely that? To, to give a contemporary <laughs> understanding. Rosie, that, that, is, that is a huge question <laughs> at the very moment of the talk. But one last word from the man at the back. Hello, I'm, I'm Roland. I work here at English National Opera, and it's a question that we ask ourselves very much um, when we're marketing and thinking
leave a comment on the website, respond to the blog, uh, and can start the debate there. You can join the conversation, of course, on the website uh, and continue some of the things, any of the things that we've talked about this evening. In the meantime, can I thank all of you for being here this evening, and can I thank our two guests, Stanley Wells and Rosie Millard. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>